Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Hey, grab a Bible or open an app. First Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at all 16 verses of this chapter as we get back into our sermon series, Moving On to Maturity, a series through First and Second Timothy. We're actually nearing the end because we started in Second Timothy and now we're in First. For reasons I don't need to get into again, but uh, yeah, it's been a good study so far. So today we're going to be talking about living above reproach and why it's important for the believer in Christ as examples of Jesus Christ to the world. Now what is that? Well, reproach means to find fault, so if you are to live above it, you're to not find fault. So if you're above it, it would be like you are a person that someone looks at And they're looking for something to criticize or to find fault in, and they can't find it. Or it it might look like this, someone criticizes you or, or accuses you of something, but those around you come to your defense and say, oh, no, 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 not not him or her. They wouldn't do that. I I know them, and their character vouches for for, uh, how they would act in that situation, to live uh, above reproach. Live above reproach. When I think about uh, this phrase, this biblical phrase, I, I think of my, my, my grandfather, actually. So grateful to come from the heritage uh, that I have. This is Amos and Ovidi Dirud. Great names, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Love them, miss them, their home with the Lord. They served on the mission field for 20 years on the island of Madagascar. That's where my father grew up. So although I don't directly from my own family come from a ministry line, uh, my grandfather's second um, profession was that of missionary and served for many years, um, just about until his uh, retirement. But I bring him up for this reason. If there's a guy who that I would say lived above reproach, it's, it's him. And he was that example to me. And and one of the ways I might express uh, living above reproach is that as a leader, both in the in the church and in his family, he uh, he led with grace and gentleness. And yet, many feared him, like in a positive way. They uh, they respected him a great deal. And uh, not to take anything away from my grandmother, a godly woman. Uh, when I think about my grandfather, I think about how he, how he led his life and was an example to me, and for that I am so grateful. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In his letter to Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes from prison. Think about that. He's writing from prison, hoping that one day he will be let free and be able to come back to the churches in Ephesus, but in case he would not, and he wouldn't, he is writing to instruct a young pastor, Timothy, who is also leading other church plants where people are gathering in homes to lead the leadership in a way that instructs them to lead by example or character. And these are the qualifications of those leaders. And and from it, we will take quite a bit. I'll get into that in a minute. But first, would you go there with me? 
as I read through a, a good section of the Scripture, uh, then we'll pause and we'll get to the rest at the end. Reading in Jesus' name, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, we'll get to these terms or these offices, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. There it is. The, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons, again we'll get to these offices, deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not hypocrites. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, be sober-minded. Faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Boy, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack here, and we're going to do that now. But for clarity's sake, let's start with the office of overseer and this term deacon. Uh, what does it mean? Overseer could be uh, translated uh, pastor. Or shepherd, if you want to um, translate it literally, shepherd. Those who are shepherding the flock of Christ. You, maybe if, you're, if you grew up in church circles, have heard, heard that kind of uh, vernacular before. And, and then this, this term deacon. Deacon, it, it, it sounds maybe prestigious, maybe, or, or old. I don't, I don't know. I don't know your background. Uh, but deacon just simply means servant or minister. And I, and, I go, and, I, and I clarify the, these terms a bit to say that as we look at the New Testament and, and some of the details of the early church and how, uh, how it was organized, especially the leadership was organized, um, in study we, we understand that these terms are used quite interchangeably. And, and why I bring that up, is that if you look in the book of Acts at, at some of the verses where these terms are being used, um, they really are used uh, in determining who is in the leadership of the church, not so much to set one group as more important than another. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? So, so the point here is not that there is some hierarchy in the church of more important people and lesser important people. That's not the point. The point is that as leadership goes... There are qualifications for leadership. And along with that, we certainly all play a role in the body of Christ. 
And, and, and so these verses certainly speak to all of us. Yes, specifically to pastors and, 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 and the leadership of the church, like our church council. So church council, listen up. But, but more so, including each one of us in our role in the church. So, so if, you, if you're thinking today, well, well, does my pastor bear these qualities? Fine. And, and I'm very regularly thinking of these verses and convicted of the expectations of a pastor. And even as Alex and I, for example, as he is a, as a, a interning pastor, go through the qualities and qualifications of pastoring, I am often reminded of the weight of responsibility on the shoulder of a pastor and the expectations that people have of those in leadership. And that's for good reason. And we're going to get into all of that. But don't remove yourself from what is being said here because we are all leaders in our sphere of influence and we all have a role in the body of Christ. I want to go through this list a little bit, if that's okay. And so starting with the qualities of pastor and overseer, we have for us what describes what it looks like to be above reproach. Starting with the husband of one wife. Uh, some, some take this to mean you cannot be divorced. Or you can only be married to one woman. Or both. Now, now I want you to know that in the AFLC, the Association of Free Lutheran Churches, that we are a part of as a church and that I serve, um, they do take this literally that way. Others might say that what it means is that you're like a one-woman guy, a man fully devoted to his wife. And I think both can apply. But in the AFLC, we take this seriously, that, that if I were to divorce, I would be removed from the clergy roster and um, the church would have to decide whether to keep me or not. <laughs> so if you didn't know that, now you know that. <laughs> did, did you know that? Some of you? No, you didn't know that. Well, that, that's, that's the stance that the AFLC takes. I think both apply to a certain extent to leadership. Secondly, sober-minded. Again, qualities of the pastor. Sober-minded. This means both temperate and self-controlled. And it also carries with it the idea that the leader must be able to handle the many ideas and decisions that go before him to be made. It, it means that one must be temperate in the way decisions are made. And, and this can be hard because sometimes decisions are difficult, right? And, and when difficult decisions are made, you can make one group mad and the other happy, and one group happy and the other mad. And in that is needed what we call sober-mindedness or temperateness. Is that a word? I don't know. Like, for example, when I make a decision that I know is not going to please someone or they're not going to be happy and then they stop talking to me. I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about the people in the first service. Kidding. I'm kidding. I did not say that in the first service. I said the people that don't come here anymore or something like that. I'm only kidding. But when decisions are made and they're difficult and then people no longer talk to me or something like that, uh, again, not you. You guys love me. 
But that's a hard thing to do. And the point would be when difficult decisions are made, you have to not only be self-controlled, but you need to be gracious. God wants us to have grace in difficult times, not just when things are easy. Sober-minded. Next one, what do you, what do you see? They're self-controlled. The, the basic premise of all of these characteristics is the idea that the overseer is to be self-controlled, for if a leader can't handle himself, he can't handle leading others, right? But of course, this speaks to not being quick-tempered, being able to control oneself. Uh, each of the what we might call the three kinds of self-control, number one, impulse control, like I can't stop eating and every time I get depressed, I can't stop eating, that sort of impulse. Uh, or or secondly, uh, secondly, emotional control. I, I can't control my feelings right now. And if I don't get them under control, I could be dangerous. That, that's what it's speaking to. And of course, you can understand why in leadership that's really important, right? And yet, we're human. And we don't live above reproach. Let me say it again, we don't. If the expectation is perfection, we don't. We'll talk about that in a bit. Self-control. This includes, this includes movement control. Like, I can't control my tongue. I can't control my eyes. I can't control my fist. Movement control. God calls the believer in Christ to be an example of His love and grace. And boy, especially for leadership, this is so critical. I'm, I'm really happy to report to you that when we have council meetings, we don't get into fist fights. <laughs> I don't know if that surprises you or not. Sure it doesn't. <laughs> I, I, I want you to know on staff, we don't yell at each other in meetings. Too often. No, I'm just, we don't. We really don't. We get along very, very well. And I'm not suggesting that couldn't happen. But I'm so grateful to serve with an awesome team. And I'm so grateful to report to you that that's not really the way we do things around here. And, let, and yet, excuse me, and yet I recognize when we get frustrated, whether we're passive aggressive or not, like, when we get frustrated, it's hard to be self-controlled. Isn't that true of everyone? Like, control is easy when things are going well, but when your two-year-old and your teenager are both arguing with you, <laughs> I'm not talking about my family, that's difficult, right? And so God calls the leader to be self-controlled, for if you cannot control yourself, you cannot control others. Or maybe I should say lead others. But it is incredibly convicting. Because we don't live above reproach. We need something in and beyond our own efforts in order to live righteously before God and be an example for Christ. The, the list goes on and I won't go through all of them this slowly. <laughs> but uh, 
It goes on to say respectable. The leader is to be respectable. Like be of good behavior. Like be the same person here as at home. Like I guess you could ask my kids. I don't want you to, but <laughs> but no, no. Like like what's dad at home? Is he the same here as he is at home? You know, minus the dancing around in the kitchen sort sort of thing. Is he above reproach? Hospitable. That means that means the, the pastor is to love strangers, invite them into their home, maybe like the little ones that my wife and I have invited into our home, the ones we take care of. Able to teach. This is certainly a prerequisite to becoming a pastor in our association, but I want you to think about it this way, and maybe if you're watching online for the first time or here for the first time, and you're coming from another church, I want to address it this way. If the pastor does not teach the Word and was not trained in the Word of God, then you really have no business being in that kind of church because you don't need the pastor's opinions, you need the Word of God. And so let me, just, let me just make that very clear, that that's the only thing you'll get at Emmaus. And I don't say that out of some kind of pride. I say it out of, out of a statement to say, there is no other way to do what we are doing. We preach the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So if you are listening or you're under the leadership of a group of leaders or a pastor or a set of pastors that were not even trained in the Word of God, then that is not following the intent of what the Apostle Paul was teaching Timothy and what God was doing in the early church. It's as simple as that. Able to teach. Uh, Verse 3, not a drunkard. That one's pretty obvious. Not someone who's addicted to alcohol. Uh, Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. I mean, how gentle are you when you get frustrated? I don't consider myself a violent person, but, but gentle? Boy, when things aren't easy and they're a bit chaotic, that one is convicting for me. Am I gentle with my children? Not a lover of money. Hebrews 13.5 puts it this way. Keep your life free from the love of money, the love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. can't tell you how many times my wife has reminded me and I have reminded her that when we're in a financial bind, so to speak, she says something like this, Nick, has, has God ever let us down? No, no. Has He provided for us? Yeah, yeah, He has. Is He faithful? Absolutely. And we need that reminder from time to time. We even need that reminder, church, about our future. Is God going to provide when you retire, so to speak? Of course we are to be good stewards with what God has given us, of course. But... But lovers of money, I want you to think about what that means, are people who dream big and hope that they'll hit it rich quick and probably would rather not work for it. It's called greed. Moving on. 
Why is the pastors and leadership of the church to live above reproach? Well, as we consider our Christian witness, good character builds trust, and without trust, you cannot build trusting relationships and guide and lead people. It's as simple as that. People don't follow those they don't trust. And he gives similar lists to deacons, and I'm not going to go through each one, one by one as I went through that with overseers and pastors or shepherds. But I want to look at verse 5 really quickly as we consider what he says about managing the household. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now whether you're kids or not, or you're married or not, this applies all the same. Because like the catchphrase we hear today, or some version of it, which really is from Jesus, to whom much is given, much is expected, these are the words of Jesus to his disciples after he taught the parable of the faithful and wise manager. It's as if to say, to whom much is given, there is much consequence for whatever decisions they're making, or their actions. Like, like, like the uncle to Peter Parker in the Spider-Man movies, who says, and it's the big phrase of the movies, and maybe you've never seen them or care about this movie, but what does he say? I had to write it down because I can't even remember. With great power comes great... You know it. You know it. That, that, that's the idea here. With great power comes great responsibility. We all have influence and responsibility over something or someone. And this matters to God, for He has a place... For all of us and has placed us in the circumstances and the circles we are for a reason, for a greater purpose for his kingdom. Another way of saying it, we have all been given much in Christ. If you have received the grace of God and his righteousness in your heart, you have been given much. And to whom has been given much? There is great consequence in the way we steward what he has given Let me further explain this as we go on just so that we understand why the Apostle Paul takes Timothy in the direction he does and says what he does in verses 14 through 16. Let me read again for you. Actually, I haven't read them for you yet. Let me read these verses for you. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and he would be delayed, he would very soon after this be put to death. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Did you catch the three descriptions of the church here? Maybe not the only descriptions of the church, but the three that are here. The first is the household of God. Now, now that certainly implies family. We're a family. I hope you see us as a family. And it does imply that, certainly. But what it's speaking about here is that not the building, but the people, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the housing of the Spirit of God and the manifest presence of God. And I want you to consider what that means for this gathering here which has nothing to do with the building itself, but, but when we come into this place, that the presence of God, a holy God, that He is here and with us. 
And, and when you're in your home group and, and you're meeting, if you show up, <laughs> um, that the presence of God is with you. How does that inform the way you worship, for example? Like, it's easy to come in and just be kind of critiquing what's going on rather than engaging in worship, consecrating your life and, and everything you do in the morning leading up or the evening and leading up. Maybe even for those who watch online, are you prepared to receive what you're receiving even though you're watching it via a computer or a television? How prepared are you to walk into worship and worship a holy God together? Because the manifest presence of God is with us when we worship. And that's different than when we are not together. Of course, God is everywhere. But there's something unique that He is doing. And that's what this is speaking to. That in the household of God, God is approached because of what Christ Jesus did on the cross. In His resurrection, we can come before a holy and perfect God through Christ Jesus. What an awesome privilege it is to be a part of the body of Christ. Secondly, the church of the living God. How does that differ from the household of God? Well, this is a reference to the gathering, similarly. But the gathering of believers as we purpose together in fellowship. In other words, we are missional. It's why we talk about Johnny Sliver and what's going on in Brazil and each month highlight another mission. It's why we do local and world missions. It's why when we come together we talk about our purposes and we even say, hey, why don't you come and be a part of this? Because we have a purpose. What we're doing is living. God is alive. He is not dead. Amen? And what He is doing here is leading us in His purposes as we put down our will and die to self and follow His will for our lives together as a community. Thirdly, we're getting close to the end, don't worry. A pillar and, what does it say? I just wanted you to say it. A pillar and, thank you, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Kind of an odd word. Kind of an odd, I guess, picture here. Seemingly, this does not mean that the church is the source of truth or the creative truth like some uh, denominations of churches teach. But rather we are given the responsibility to uphold and affirm the truth of the Word of God in the world today. Remember Paul's early warnings for us not to be swayed by carnal philosophies or false teaching. The church bears the earthly responsibility of holding up the truth of the gospel. And the truth really, in short, is Jesus. We are representatives of Jesus to, to the world. And, and boy, that is a responsibility. Like Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to live a life, what does it say? Worthy of the calling. Worthy of the calling. Are you worthy of the calling? In short, what we're talking about today, living above reproach, is the question we're answering, are you worthy of the calling? Now, the answer to that question, personally, for each one of us, is no, we are not. And yet, I want us to remember, moving on to maturity, growth in Christ, living above reproach, that comes when we surrender to God our will, and allow Him to have His way in our hearts and lives. In other words, it's not giving 
a better effort this week, although effort is needed. But rather, it's surrendering our will to Him and following after Him as He has already gifted us His righteousness. We sang it right before I got up here and preached. That what we are what we are seeking, what we are hoping and what we are doing, the battles that we are a part of and what has been waged on this earth, the victory has already been won. And yet as we allow Him to work in our lives, more and more He will shine through and as He shines through, more and more we'll know the love and the grace of God. He closes with verse 16 and that's where I will close too. You can thank me later. He says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's a reference to epiphany, what we celebrate today on the church calendar, epiphany. That is, that God's revelation comes by the Spirit of God. In other words, you cannot know the truth of God's Word. You cannot know Him. You cannot even step a foot into His house, so to speak, without Him and His work and His welcoming in your life. It is He who reveals Himself to us. And then He says this, and this is interesting, an interesting way to close this thought. It almost seems like He started a new thought, but He has not at all. He says this, He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up to glory. We believe it's an old hymn or an old praise and worship song. And he's just quoting it. And why does he quote it? To remind us that what we have together, he's praising and worshiping God, to remind us that what we have is a privilege and a blessing. This is a privilege and a blessing. Leaders, It's a privilege and a blessing that you get to lead. Pastors, teachers, leaders, it's a privilege and a blessing that you can even be a part of this. Why? Because God appoints us. And God is the one who is leading His church. And I'm so glad that because we know the responsibility is in God's hands and we can trust Him as He leads and directs us to lives that are lived above reproach, that He has already won that victory And that we can trust Him for what we are looking to be one day. Oh, we fall down and we don't live above reproach today, but I hope tomorrow it's better. I hope next year I'm better, right? And so I hope for that growth in my life. Why? Because every day, more and more, when I get rid of the distractions that keep me from seeing God and who He is and His truth and His Word, every day that the distractions get further and further away from me, the greater I see His glory and His goodness in my life. And that's what living righteously is all about. And as God continues to work in our hearts, we grow and we see more clearly what He is doing, not only in our lives, but in the church. And more and more we grow in that grace and it brings joy into our lives and changes our perspectives. And that's a perspective I hope each one of us want as we lead where God has put us. Would you stand with me as we respond in worship and I close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful 
for what you're doing in, in your house. Church of the living God. The household of faith. The pillar and buttress that we are of your truth to the world. But Lord Jesus, we are not righteous. We are not pure. In fact, everything within us wants to, to, to go against that which is good for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we need you and we need your righteousness. And we proclaim your righteousness in our lives today so that we may go from here living as examples of your truth, that Jesus, you are our Savior and our Lord. And in you, there is all hope for eternity. Encourage us, Lord. Equip us in order that we would be an example of who you truly are to all those around us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.